I always tell passive investors a few things. First thing I tell them is if you're not comfortable with a deal or you don't understand it, don't invest in it. This is not the last deal that anybody's ever going to do. There'll be other deals. Mm-hmm. The metrics are going to change. The property's going to change. The market's going to change. But that's okay. It's not, you're not trying to time the market. You want to spend time in the market. So I tell them if you don't understand this and your sponsor is not taking time to explain this to you or they're pressuring you, don't do it. It's a bad fit. You should wake up excited about this deal, not worried about it. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Five Talents Podcast. I'm your host, Abel Pacheco. I interview the top commercial real estate investors and industry experts so you can learn from their experiences. So if you're an investor, a high W-2 earner or real estate or tech sales professional that wants to invest in real estate without having to manage properties or leave your day job, then this podcast is for you. Or if you're already investing in real estate, but you're doing it part-time and you want to become a full-time multifamily or full-time commercial real estate investor, this podcast is for you too. You're going to learn a ton. You will learn from real-life multifamily investors and other professionals in the industry. They're going to share their blueprints for success. And I'm super excited that you're here. So I hope you enjoy the show. All right. Hello. Hello. This is Abel Pacheco, your host for the Five Talents Podcast. We are super excited today because we have another amazing guest, Mrs. Vina Jetty, who is one of those individuals that just has a way of finding big deals, a big portfolio, a lot of investors raising hundreds of millions of dollars across a portfolio of multifamily commercial real estate And I have a feeling we are going to learn a lot from her today. So she's the founder of Vive Funds. They have $400 million plus portfolio in Texas, Florida, Georgia, and they just launched another $100 million fund called Rev Fund. So Rev It Up. They're based in (laughs) Dallas and I'm excited. So Vina, thanks for joining. How's it going? Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. Thanks for joining. I appreciate it. Yeah. Vina is one of our friends from Clubhouse, and uh, I just I met her this year. Super impressed by a lot of things she does. I know a lot of her partners. Uh, I actually have had some of her partners on the show, and uh, ex- you know, just excited to uh, to be here. So, Vina, thank you very much for joining. In your own words, let me turn this over to you for a second. Right. Yeah. Tell us who you are and what you do, and we'll just start a great conversation here. That sounds perfect. So, I won't give you guys like the big, long, boring backstory because if you've listened to it. Any of the other podcasts I've done, I go into a lot of detail about my background. But generally speaking, I come from a real estate family. My mom was a very successful real estate investor. So, you know, I learned from the best and then uh, graduated college when I was 20 with my degree in finance and went to work in corporate real estate, ultimately left my corporate gig and went into business for myself. And I've been investing since then. As you said, I'm in Dallas, Texas, and we just launched a $100 million fund. So it's actually a collaboration between Vive Funds and uh, Blue Lake Capital, which is run by Ellie Perlman. And so I'm really excited about that. Awesome. Let me let me pause for a second and just say a hundred million dollar fund. What mm-hmm. in the world is this? So how many funds have you done? And we'll, you know, wh- wh- where where is this coming from? This hundred million dollar fund? How many are you on and yeah. have you done so far? 
So this is actually the first fund that's launching. So it's Rev Fund One. Um, okay. And kind of the thought process behind it, it's actually been a very, very much a labor of love. It's been a very strategic move that we made, uh, mainly because we were getting a lot of demand from our investors to have more diversity in their portfolios, even at lower investment amounts. And what I mean by that is if an investor is investing $100,000 into a deal, it's not practical for them to be able to invest into five deals with 100,000 or 10 deals with 100,000. So this was an avenue for someone who's investing that maybe they invest 100,000 on a yearly basis or every six months or whatever that looks like gives them really less exposure by being in multiple assets across the fund. Uh, secondly, we have spent a lot of time speaking with various institutional investors to understand their strategy and what they're doing because they have access to millions of data points that we don't necessarily have access to. They invest in infrastructure of cities. So it's really important that we're looking to those large funds to see what they're doing and what their strategy is. And this was very much in line with the synergy of an institutional fund. Got it. Okay. Well, very strategic. I heard diversification, investors that have the ability to invest across multiple different assets yeah. with a limited amount of funds on a whatever schedule. If it's 100K, yeah. usually minimums are like $50,000 minimum investment is a common number you see across mm -hmm. the board. And so if I have 100K to invest every year or every six months, then I'm only getting in two deals as opposed to my 100K maybe going across four or five or 10 or more deals. Correct. That's essentially it. Yep, that's exactly it. And so you just get a lot of diversity. And also it's a lot of it is our investor database. We have a lot of repeat investors into our deals. And so our investors that repeat invest with us, they don't want to have to compete to get into any one deal. They want to just invest and be done and forget it till the next time they're ready to add a chunk of funds. So that was kind of the other thought. It makes it yeah. easy for them. So we're trying to expand our offerings so that investors, we can accommodate more investors, not less investors. Part of this is competition. You mentioned the word, they don't want to have to compete. And <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna come back for a minute. So it's 2021. So timestamp our podcast interview. <laughs> My first investment that I made passively was in 2018. And I was talking to my friend, he's a syndicator, he's doing a deal. And, you know, he said, he goes, Hey, I know we've been meeting. I had a lunch, I had a hung out with him. He was telling me how it all worked. And he said, I got a deal coming up. He was telling me on like Saturday or Sunday, I'm going to send it out on Monday. He was prepping me for it. I didn't realize it, but he goes, it's going to fill up pretty fast. I would check it out. Sounds like you want to get in. Let me know. Yeah. I get it on Monday. I talk with my wife on Tuesday. It's too late. <laughs> we made the decision on Wednesday. I'm in. And he goes, man, I'm sorry. We're oversubscribed yeah. one and a half by one and a half times. Yeah. And it's full. <laughs> I was like, dude, he sent it out on Monday. Are you kidding yeah. me? And they're like, $3 million. He goes, it was a small raise or whatever, whatever the number. It was a pretty small raise. My mind was kind of. You know, it was yeah. definitely not stretched at that point to realize that you literally raised $3 million in like two to three days. And so it I was competing. I didn't realize it, but I was competing with everyone else trying to get into the deal. That's and the thing. So this fund kind of solves some of this. Yeah. And, you know, similar to that, every single deal that we've done has overfunded or oversubscribed. And so, mm -hmm. and the way we treat our investors in our databases. If you've invested with us once, you get first crack at every deal we do because there's a relationship and there's loyalty there. 
So we send it out first to current and previous investors. Then we send our deals to kind of what I call our second round or our VIP round, which is friends and family referrals of current or previous investors. So that's that second list is really where we fund, at, we oversubscribe. And then the third list goes to a wider database of someone who maybe like Googled me and hasn't spoken with me or something like that. And so um, because we're doing 506C raises, uh, they're only open to accredited investors, but oftentimes that means that those are investors that we maybe don't really have a very close relationship with. And so unfortunately, we just don't get that far based on our current database. But yeah, to your point, I mean, depending on the size of the raise, it could fill up in as quickly as an hour or two, or it can take, you know, a week or so, but it, it just depends. And timing depends too. Yeah. And so all of this, uh, the fund now, if I'm invested in a fund, in your fund anyways, this one goes across many multiple assets the way you you all have set it up. So you're like, hey, place the capital, commit, you get in line, you're going to put your money out there, the next deal we get there. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll be across the multiple assets. Exactly. And it just, it's almost like, a, like I said, a set it and forget it mentality when it comes to the fund. But it, look, if funds are not for everybody, there we have investors that are- <laughs> I have some fun ones to talk to you about. So oh, yeah. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, there's some investors that say, no, I want to know about every single deal that I'm investing into. I want to pick, I want to choose, I want to- not be in Georgia or I want to not be in Florida or whatever it is. So then this is not a good fit for them. And that's okay too. Not every deal or not every fund is going to be a good fit for every investor. Yeah. So this by definition is like a sublime pool fund, right? Yeah. Semi-blind. Um, okay. So we do, we do narrow the scope a little bit. Until this like, type of asset. Yeah. This what market. Our target this... is. Yeah. Okay. A blind fund would be like true blind fund. Like I don't try, send your money. Trust yeah, me, I'm going to buy some good it. stuff. Okay. Yes. Semi blind. You own like 17 Ferraris <laughs> <laughs> or so, a personal ownership of them. Got it. Semi blind, commercial <laughs> real estate, multifamily, maybe in this asset class, in this market. You still don't know what the heck you're getting into until it closes, but set it and forget it. I trust you. Here's the money. Let's move forward. Yeah. So we actually go so far as to kind of determine what assets we are going to go after. So they're kind of, we have a kind of a buy box or a criteria, mm -hmm. and it actually is exactly the same as our syndication buy box. So that, that doesn't change because we are still offering a direct investment option. So really the fund is complementary to our syndication. You have, you have a direct investment, somebody who just wants to be in this one asset or the fund. Right. Okay. So it doesn't, and the reason we set it up like that, that was actually also strategic because what it does is it gives our investors reassurance that we haven't changed anything about our model. Nothing has changed. All of our criteria still has to fit. And so there's no sensitivity around, okay, well now that you have a blind fund or semi-blind fund, whatever you want to call it, are you now pivoting and changing what you're going after? And the simple answer is no, because it still has to fit the syndication side that we've been doing. So it's going to be still bread and butter deals in that regard. Got it. Okay, cool. Uh, this is fun. And and the reason I uh, enjoy the conversation, we launched our first fund. It wasn't a $100 million fund. Congratulations. It was a $5 million fund. Uh -huh. was, that was our cap. We've been raising for a few months. It's actually my most difficult. We've done seven deals that were active deals. And it's been one of those ones that are like, hey, we're going to buy some great real estate. Trust us. It's kind of <laughs> how I felt like I've been talking. But 
it's a reg D 506 C kind of the way you set it up much smaller, different level and pace than, than you are, but it's been That's really bad. great learning about, yeah, it's, it's been amazing learning about it. And like what you're telling me right now is, okay, it's exactly what I feel like I've been experiencing a little bit. Hey, so you're, some people don't want to be in the fund. No problem. We're, yeah. we're still buying one asset at a time. Like this is how and we're doing it have, in our market. Do you have seven assets in your fund right now? Well, so we, we're, uh, I hit an easy button on a fund. We are a fund of funds. A fund of funds. Okay. And we chose a much bigger entity, uh, actually a pretty huge entity. And they're buying, like I saw this uh, article in the Dallas News, they're buying 10,000 doors. Oh, was that all? <laughs> yeah. To, oh, that that little guy. And, and we're coming in as a limited partner, passive investor into their fund, kind of like the way you, you have set it up. And we said, hey, it's, uh, it is, I guess, semi-blind. We're only going to put our money into this particular mm-hmm. fund. So, uh, yeah. but anyways, it's been, it's, it's been a learning experience. That's for sure. Yeah. And I think too, when you're working with an operator that big, these types of smaller, like fund of funds make mm-hmm. sense to set up because usually the minimum for those is like $10 million. It was a, yeah. It was crazy. Like institutional crazy. And they were like, well, most of our investors are 50 K or hundred K. Oh, now yeah. we can get in and participate. So anyways, yep. they get to be involved in funds. They wouldn't otherwise have access to. Yep. Makes total uh, sense. So I like what you y'all are putting together and you and your partner have, have done $400 million of multifamily so, commercial real estate um, so partnership that's team. With, you go. That's within my portfolio. Her portfolio is separate than mine because it's actually a JV partnership. Yep. And so she has her own portfolio. I want to say hers is somewhere, it's over 300 million. I think it's it's getting out there. But together we've transacted on about $150 million of deals cool. um, over the last so, years. And- well, Vive and your partners are cranking away. So how did you get, here, how did you, how did you yeah. get to raise this? Uh, like, I'm going to embark on this hundred million dollar fund. Yeah. Please tell us about a few different levels of like your real estate, you know, maybe a portfolio ownership. At first I was doing this and then yeah. I went to here and this, just give us an idea how you even got here. Yeah. So like I said, you know, I came from a real estate family, so I already had a very solid foundation from the time I was like barely walking. Right. And so I had that foundation and then I had the corporate side, which really helped me understand how institutions think, really helped me understand how they look at assets and strategize around assets. It gave me almost that like buttoned up version of real estate investing. You worked for a commercial, you know, like a brokerage or a... No, I was actually, um, I was at a private group that owns their own real estate, owns and manages. It's fully okay. vertical. Um, you're an em- employee, but you're learning yeah. the way they do it at their at their scale at their and scale. level, whatever, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, and they had a multi-billion dollar portfolio. So I was actually on the management yeah. side of a billion dollar plus asset. It was a million square feet. In How Washington. long were you there for? Um, so I was there until 2012. Okay. And I left in 2012 to start investing on my own. Uh, moved to Dallas in 2013 from DC to Dallas. So you bought your first asset, your first multifamily commercial asset that was like yours or your team's. What, when was that? So we started um, syndicating deals in 2014. So like so- seven years. That's that's what we can accomplish if we set <laughs> after it. <laughs> yes. And I, I actually used to invest before that passively, or sorry, not passively, for my husband and I on in our privately. 
And so, and we invested passively then too, but we invested into deals for ourselves before I ever took in investor capital. And I still own some of those deals, but those were smaller deals. They were not large multifamily that we go after today. So yeah, so ultimately um, started buying deals. And when there was kind of a shift, if you will, in the market from COVID, ultimately tried to think of what the best way to accommodate more investors were. It's really about understanding your investor database, who they are, what they need, what they're looking for, and making sure that you are um, trying to accommodate as many investors as possible. That's awesome. Okay. Well, congratulations. A lot of kudos to all your success. And it's hard, uh, I guess, on multiple different levels. I see, you know, someone like yourself, I will say a woman, a woman of color uh, in an industry that's, you know, not dominated or it is dominated by males, guys. And and it's you probably have more obstacles and challenges uh, than a lot of other people face. And I'll say, you know, that's that's like it's motivational to me. Going, oh, okay, this is what you've done in seven years. Like if one, if one person can do it, then another one can do it also. And it's, it's inspiring. It's, it's really cool to just to see your success and get it on. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes. I, I mean, it's a lot of work, but it's a labor of love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So your mom, did she do real estate like this? Or did she like single family houses or something, you know? Yeah. So my mom started out with in the residential space. And so my mom, when they first came here, it was a very different real estate market. So both your my mom parents, was immigrant to, to the US. Okay. Correct. So both this my is a, immigrants. Yeah. My dad came here to do his PhD in metallurgical engineering. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. my mom obviously they were married, so she came with him. This was before I was born. Then after they were here for a bit, I was born and my dad finished up his PhD. We moved to the Chicago suburbs and my mom started investing there. And I actually think it was a function of her being a mom. She had myself and my sister. I have a younger sister who's a minority owner in Vive. But my dad was traveling and he traveled like 40, 45 weeks out of the year. And mm-hmm. He was extremely busy. So he physically wasn't home. And my mom couldn't go to like a nine to five job because my sister and I needed to be taken care of. We had to be driven to school, whatever. And so I think it became more of a function of her being able to do this in flex time. And, you know, as kids, I remember us going to closings and we sat in in these boring walkthroughs and attorney meetings and you know, I, at the time I didn't realize it would be helpful to me in the future, but now I'm really grateful that it happened because it gave me a really good footing to be able to expand and scale the business. So I've taken what my parents did and I just scaled it up. Yeah. So you were, you were kind of like in the, there at the background in the office or whatever property tours, that kind of thing. Do you have children now? I do. I do. How old are your little ones? So I have twin girls that are going to be two in July. Oh, congratulations. Wow. You're you're busy. So are are they coming along with you on your property tours? Are they They starting to, or are you, what's, uh, no, they're still too little to be entertained like that. And I, I like to focus and pay attention, but, um, you know, when I go to tour a property or secret shop, a property that we own, um, I absolutely will be taking them with me or, you know, it depends on the setting because I play in a little bit of a different space, but it might be harder to bring toddlers around with me everywhere. But um, yeah, I am going to expose them to what we do. I keep teasing Ellie and I'm like, when they're older, I'm sending them to go and intern with you and learn from you. Yeah. 
she's phenomenal. I learned so much from her. So that's my, that's why I keep telling her, I'm going to send them over to you, Ellie, and you take care of them. She's like, I'm not going to give them a break. I'm like, I don't expect you to. That's why I'm sending them there. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Well, that, that's really cool. I have a, I have a three-year-old and a one that's going to be two pretty soon. And okay. uh, I would take my three-year-old right before COVID. You yeah. know, she was kind of coming with me and I just in the car seat and like, let's go. And I'd take her and I was, she was small enough to hold. Now she's getting a little bit bigger. And I didn't take her anywhere during COVID. I'm like, stay yeah. in the house. Right. Yeah. Uh, but now, you know, I would say uh, as, as things kind of settle down, I, I want them to be close and, and uh, yeah. trying to teach them these different lessons and kind of, it's kind of cool hearing you learn from your mom, you yeah. know, whether it's subconsciously or consciously. And now I'm sure that shapes some of the actions and risk and uh, moves that you made, you know, yeah. even to today. Absolutely. And it gave me a built-in board of directors, right? Like I can always go and have a second opinion from my parents to see, Hey, what do you guys think of this? Or what if I did this? Or I'm thinking about this, does this make sense? And they understand it and they can give me really good feedback. So it's really Mm -hmm. helpful to have them from just a strategy perspective and to have that sounding board with that trust built in. Got it. Hello, hello. You're listening to the five talents podcast. I'm your host, Abel Pacheco. If you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're serious about achieving financial freedom. Are you ready to create your own path through multifamily investing for yourself and your family? Then I know you're gonna appreciate our investor's guide to multifamily investing. It's titled Tackling Commercial Real Estate the Easy Way. We use this guide to invest ourselves in $93 million worth of real estate. So we're gonna show you the basic mechanics of multifamily syndications and how to evaluate your next passive investment opportunity. So the best part, if you subscribe to our podcast now, leave us a review and a rating, I'm gonna give you a free copy of our ebook. So please take a moment to do that now. Once you've done that, go to 5tcre.com forward slash ebook, 5tcre.com forward slash ebook. Make sure to let us know you left a review and we're gonna send you a free copy. So thank you so much for subscribing to the Five Talents Podcast. We really appreciate it. Okay, so uh, thank you very much for this. It's been a great conversation so so far. So shifting a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, for those that are listening and that you're you're new to multifamily syndication, because I have a good mix, Vina, I believe, of passive investors that are trying to learn more about investing passively, as well as newer, younger syndicators uh, that are trying to get their first, second, third, fourth deal going on and trying to get to a a position of, right? So we've got a little bit of mixture in here. If you haven't figured it out, or if you have, you're looking at $400 million worth of portfolio. The banks will give us 70, 75%, maybe a little bit more on a good deal. But that means if the banks are giving us $300 million for this $400 million portfolio, then we had to already raise, Vina has already had to raise $100 million worth of real estate, give or take, right? A ton of capital. How in the world did you raise that much? And then like, how does that happen? It's a seven year, obviously run. It doesn't happen overnight, but maybe tell us about your first capital raise and then Mm -hmm. second, third capital raise and give us a a few waves or plateaus that you've hit along the way. Yeah. So 
the first time I raised capital, we were raising 1.2 million, I think was the total on it. Okay. And I cried myself to sleep every day for six weeks thinking we were not going to be able to raise the funds. Yeah. It was very challenging because you don't know what you don't know. Over time, I remember I actually came home to my husband one night. He was like, we have to sell everything that we have invested. We need to liquidate the 401ks. He was ready to hit that. He was ready to hit that capital risk. I mean, I told him, it was like, we have to close this deal. There's no two ways about it. We're committed at this amount. We're closing it. Um, And, you know, that attitude has not really changed. Just the (laughs) amount of capital we're raising has changed. So we, we started out, we somehow managed to get that one done. Um, you know, I will say I, I was calling everybody that I knew and, you know, like my uncles, my aunts, like my high school friends, everybody. I'm like, Hey guys, I have this deal. Like, are you interested? No. Okay. And we were raising it one check at a time, which was very tough to do since then. And over time, we've developed a lot of best practices and processes, which have really helped us because it's streamlining a lot of it. So by contrast, our last raise was a $20 million raise. Uh, Actually, it was a $26 million offering on a deal in Marietta. It was actually a deal I partnered on with Ellie. It was an $80 million deal total. And so we- It's a little deal. Yeah, right? (laughs) So we put out a uh, $26 million offering and we raised that. Really, we had to have good processes and systems in place. Without that, there's no way it's possible because- what happens when you're raising capital and if you're just starting out, this is something to kind of think about as you're setting your systems up in place. You have to be able to scale if you're going to raise more capital because it doesn't really change from a fundamentals perspective on the underwriting, whether you're underwriting a $10 million deal or a $100 million deal, right? Like some things are going to change, but t- the technical aspects are really going to stay the same. Same with proper, the operations, um, the asset management side of that. There's not really a whole lot of major changes. There's going to be tweaks that are going to be asset specific, of course, but that'll happen when you're looking at one $30 million property and another $30 million property. What changes on the capital side is the volume of investors that you're going to have and the check sizes that you're going to have. And what happens is as you get larger check sizes, you have more due diligence hurdles that you need to cross. So you need to be set up in a way that allows you to handle those one in a timely way and two in an efficient way and three in a way that makes sense to your investor and you can continue speaking to your investor. So what we did was we really set up like I have a very clear timeline of how my deals roll out. I know exactly when I have to trigger the PPM documents. I know when I have to trigger the bank accounts. I know when I trigger the signs. I know how to send the signs to my investors. I know what times and at what points in the raise I'm sending out update emails to my investors. I know how I'm following up with them. So you want to think through that. It's already planned out over many multiple times. Clearly, you know, this is what I'm doing over the next two weeks or whatever the time is. Exactly. Or it's, it'll, it's more... Like, okay, now we're 70% raised. We're sending a follow-up email to our investors. Okay. Hey, guys, we're 70% funded. These are your milestones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and it's like, oh, you've uh, LOI, like even start from the beginning. Maybe this would be really helpful for some people, <laughs> Name, namely myself. So thank you. <laughs> but yeah. I have an LOI. It's been accepted. I have a, uh, for those that are, uh, I forget this sometimes, letter of intent we, we don't start with an agreement or a contract. We start with a letter of intent. Here's what I believe 
We're going to pay for it. Mr. Seller, Mrs. Seller, will you sell the property at this price? Yes. Okay, cool. They sign it. We then go to purchase sale agreement. So there's a little bit of a window between that and when we sign the contract and put earnest money down and stuff like that. So maybe take us from an LOI. LOI finally got accepted. Yep. So Tell us your timeline. LOI gets accepted. It depends on the time frame, right? So each deal is a little bit different. So there's sure. some nuance to it. But generally speaking, we trigger the PSA negotiations. Assuming there's no access agreement, we trigger PSA negotiations. I also trigger PPM. So mm -hmm. we work with Nick Same McGrew. Yeah. yeah. I work with Nick McGrew every time out of LA from Polymath Legal. He's fantastic. He knows our process. He understands us. I trigger it with him, call him up, say, hey, Nick, we're getting ready to launch this. Here's all the details of what we have. We trigger the OM. OM creation happens simultaneously. Once Nick gives us the entity information, we start getting bank accounts set up. Um, so once all of that is done and together, we send the OM. Usually that'll mm -hmm. happen before we even have PPM documents. And we send that for you review. Said, oh, I know I've, uh, I've worked with multiple teams. Some people have different thought processes on. Some people are like, no, I'm only going to send the OM when I have a PPM where they can yeah. sign right afterwards and do that. You're obviously in a different camp in this mindset. Yeah, we send OM right away and we open our reservations, like our soft commitments right away. Okay. And then once we this start- This is while you're doing due diligence, physical this, due diligence. Nope. This is during the PSA negotiation. Okay. Okay. So, so you haven't even started the physical on-site get in there. Okay. Okay. I'm with yeah, you. I'm listening. I mean, and usually we're like seven to 10 days to get to PSA. Usually Pretty seven fast. days is more That's than good. Yeah. Okay. So this is like all within the course of the week. It happens very fast in the beginning. Okay. Uh, so we take our soft commitments and then we- um, we send out our, so we send our own, we take our soft commitments and we also host a conference call. What I tell investors is the OM is going to answer 70% to hundred percent of your questions. Mm -hmm. The conference call is going to answer the remaining 30% of your questions, maybe 20% of your questions. You might have one or two additional questions, but at this point, I know what investors are going to ask for the most part. So what I'll do is we'll do a one-on-one -on -one call after the conference call if their questions still aren't answered because I want all my investors to have 100% of their questions answered. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that really, I, uh, webinars really do help to take care of, you. hey, what are my returns? What's my hold time? What's my equity uh, multiple? What market? What's the strategy? Uh, you take care of all this stuff and it takes care of 70% of all of it. And some people move forward right away. And then there, there may be a one-off two or questions. You have a little bit for FAQ. If you haven't, if you've never invested passively on a deal, that's number one. You should you should start looking at multiple people's deals, yeah. multiple syndicators, operators, teams. You just just go in, even if you're not going to invest today. Yeah. You'll start getting comfortable with this stuff. But anyways, please go ahead, Vina. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that recommendation. I think you should be on multiple lists so you can kind of compare and see what you're looking at because different syndicators will have different processes. For me, we we actually ask for all questions to be sent ahead of time or to be asked via email, mainly because what can happen is, is it can start going down these rabbit holes and we try to limit our conference calls to just one hour or less. Yeah, but what yes. we do answer 100% of questions from every investor. So we ultimately okay. end up answering them. And most people have the same like 10 questions. It's usually... What are the minimums? What are the returns? Are you going to do cost seg? Do I get a K1? Those are kind of like the big questions that get asked every single time. So we actually answer those out of the gate regardless. 
You know, uh, a lot of work before that PSA comes out. You've you've already done. I'm assuming a lot of like that pre due diligence. You oh yeah, you kind of informally walked in yeah. a bunch of times and yada yada. Okay, yeah. So, so by the time we're at PSA negotiation, we're like ninety percent done with due diligence. We're waiting yeah. for the actual verification on our assumptions. We're waiting for physically walking the asset and you know, doing all of our checklists through it. We're waiting for the documents to do lease audits, financial audits, et cetera. So other than like those specific things, we're pretty much done with due diligence at that point. We start due diligence the same day or the day after the PSA is signed. So the first day we have access, we start physical due diligence and financial. It all runs concurrently to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so we start raising capital. We do the conference call. At the end of the conference call, we usually have our PPM ready or within a few days, we have it ready to go. Um, So we send our PPM, our investors get three days to sign wire funds. We send a confirmation, pretty easy peasy. And then, you know, if someone decides not to move forward, we just move down the waiting list to the next person. Because by the time the conference call is done, we're almost always fully funded. I do make it a point to reach out to my investors that I know invest into every single deal with us. I do make it a point to reach out to them individually to say, hey, your soft commitment hasn't come through. I want to make sure you've seen, you've seen this. Um, but those that's like a handful of investors that I do that with because I know them so well. Well, thank you very much. This is It's been helpful even yeah. like for me, hopefully other people that are trying to raise more capital, do more deals, hopefully something that Vina shared is illuminating. I know it was for me. I took a bunch of notes. So thank you very much. And <laughs> there's there's an in-between, right? So your first deal, I, I can remember mine. Here's my Excel list. And I'm just going to start calling my friends and people that I knew. And, you know, I'm trying to like have lunch. Uh, and this is, I had a full-time job at the time, but like, let me have lunch with you. And then the evening I started calling in the morning and emails are going crazy and text messages. Yeah. I'm all over the place. There's no no systematic approach whatsoever. Uh, it's gotten a little bit better now that I've I've gone through it many multiple times, yeah. but I can relate with your first deal wanting to cry. How do I get a million bucks? Now I can see where the seven years later, wow, this is amazing. But those in-between steps, like how did you get to a position to be able to have this $26 million raise? Like, you know, was, was it one deal a year in the beginning and then it, it ramped up drastically? And how did you how did you find all your investors? How, how did that happen? Yeah. So my investors, I actually get a lot of number one repeat investors, but number two, a lot of referrals. Okay. And a big piece of that, I think, is because when when once you're referred from a current investor, you get onto mm-hmm. that kind of second round list. So you get easier access than if you just come and find me on your mm-hmm. own. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's a big piece of it. It's hard to say exactly, but I love networking. I network a lot. And I think too, it really depends on who your investor database is because my database might be completely different than yours, right? So depending on who your avatar is, you're going to want to um, talk to them in a certain way and you're going to want to describe the deal in a certain way. Whereas my investors might be a little bit different or you might be adjusting your um, how in-depth you get if you're talking to another syndicator who's investing, right? So if you're coming and pitching a deal to me, I'm going to ask you different questions than what most investors are going to ask you, right? Because there's certain metrics I care about. Um, if you're talking to a large family office, they're going to have a different mm. uh, 
idea yeah. or thought process of what they want to see and how they want to see it underwritten. If you're talking to an institutional fund, it's going to be different again. So it's really understanding who you're speaking to, your investor avatar, because you don't want to overwhelm your investor and you don't want to give them information that's not relevant to them or what they care about. So I, I think to grow your investor database, one, you have to be getting referrals, but two, you also have to be networking. You need to be maintaining relationships. I put a lot of emphasis on my current and previous investors because they've already invested with me. They already know me. So I actually look at the KPI of how many investors invest in two or more deals of mine. That's what I care about the most of all my metrics. I also strive to I, like always joke and say I rolled Vive out because I wanted it to be like the Chanel of real estate. Like I want it to be that white glove, luxurious experience when an investor is investing. And so they always can reach out to me. They can text me. They can email me. You know, if it's like a scheduling thing or, you know, something easy, then yes, they can reach out to my admin. But if they have an actual question or something they need to talk through, they always have access to me. Well, oh, this is fun. Um, Miss Chanel of investing. I love it. Uh, I, I got, I got excited. My questions kind of tend to be like, how in the world did you raise that much capital? I'd love to be able to have that. But real quick before you go in insight for passive investors that are listening. So let me, let's serve uh, some of them as well. What single piece of advice, what best nugget, what insight can you provide a passive investor and please take the last few minutes, like, let's, you know, just give, give them a few things, something that would help them in their journey. Yeah. So I think as a passive investor, people invest with people they know, know, like, and trust, right? Like those are the fundamentals. I always mm -hmm. tell passive investors a few things. First thing I tell them is if you're not comfortable with a deal or you don't understand it, don't invest in it. This is not the last deal that anybody's ever going to do. There'll be other deals. Mm -hmm. The metrics are going to change. The property's going to change. The market's going to change. But that's okay. It's not, you're not trying to time the market. You want to spend time in the market. So I tell them, if you don't understand this and your sponsor is not taking time to explain this to you or they're pressuring you, don't do it. It's a bad fit. You should wake up excited about this deal, not worried about it. So that's one. Two, this is not as glitzy and glamorous and as sexy as TV makes it sound. There's risk in every investment. That's why it's an investment. Mm -hmm. um, so please make sure you understand the risks. Make sure you consult with your financial advisors, your lawyers, your accountants, whoever you need to, to make a decision that is a correct fit for your portfolio. Most of us are not fiduciaries to you until you're invested. And most of us are not advisors. So make sure that you understand what you're investing into before you invest into it. And I also tell them too, in order to truly properly vet the deal, you have to really understand different rules of thumb that are appropriate or what questions to ask or how to vet a sponsor. The one big tip I give everybody is this industry, and you know this, it's very opaque in terms of who's actually a GP or a sponsor on a deal or who is you know, not really that involved in the decision making. And sometimes it can be hard to tell, especially for a passive investor. Um, if you go to edgar.gov, I think it's edgar.gov or the Edgar site of the sec.gov website, um, you can look up your sponsor. Um, so for example, if you go to our, the, the Edgar site and you look up our fund, you have to look up the actual entity name. So you'll have to ask for that. But there will be a registering with the SEC if they're actually with the fund sponsors on it. So that's what I tell investors. So you can see who you're actually talking to. There should be a registration of some sort, but you, you'll need to get the name of it usually because there'll be like millions of records on most um, of these sites. So you'll want to look it up very specifically. And 
Also, the other thing to that, the caveat is during COVID, when we filed the last one, it took like six weeks for it to update on the website. So don't panic if it's not there. It may <laughs> just be taking time to update. Yeah. But generally, if you ask a sponsor, hey, if I look it up on Edgar, will I find it? They should be able to say yes. And they should be able to give you the information that you can verify that. Got to make sure SEC syndicated. Well, in syndication number one, with through uh, with official uh, SEC attorney that's going to file all that stuff, blue sky, whatever, whatever laws. And yeah. in every state if that you're in as an investor, they've got to do it per, you know, per mm-hmm. state. And there's an exemption that goes out and it's not just, I'm going to pull this LLC together and let's go do this deal. It's pretty, pretty well thought out. Uh, you need to make sure you're with a team that knows at least how to hire the right team to go do this stuff. So 100%. Okay. This yes. is awesome. There's well, a method to the madness. There is a hundred percent. Okay. Well, Ms. Vina, thank you very much. You also have some tools or course or something along those lines for passive investors or something that you've created? I do. So I kept getting asked a lot of these questions over and over. So I have released a course and it's a six week course. There's live sessions. So we do like a live interaction once a week. And I have co-instructors who are also phenomenal in their respective areas that we bring into lecture on different modules, but six week course, there's all the videos in there and it's specifically designed for passive investors. So if you are an active investor looking to learn how to acquire a deal, this is not that course. This is the course if you're getting ready to write a $25,000, million check, whatever that is, and you're unfamiliar with how to vet a deal, how to vet a sponsor, how to look at a deal, what questions you should be asking. It kind of gives you a solid, comprehensive understanding of the deal so you can speak to it at a more intelligent level. So it's really creative. It's called the Multifamily Masterclass. Um, and it's at just MF, like multifamily, mfmasterclass.com. So you can find it there. Very good. Very good. And I know we're at time. So thank you very much for hanging with us. Where can we reach out to you if we want to learn more, invest in the fund, you know, get into your world a little bit? Where, where do we go and who do you want to reach out to you? Yes, absolutely. So thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Um, you can find me on my website. It's just vivefunds.com, B-I-V-E-F-U-N-D-S.com. I have an investor portal there. You can register. You'll get our offerings. Again, they're 506C offerings. So they're for accredited investors only. And yes, we do make sure we're going to make you go and get an authorization letter or a verification letter. So, and there's no exceptions to that in the 506C, you know this. Mm. So you can find me there. You can find me on social media under Vina Jetty. I'm on Clubhouse, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you name it. I'm probably on it under Vina Jetty. Right on. Well, Vina, thank you so much. Is there anything we hadn't talked about or anything you were hoping that I asked I didn't get to? Anything that you wanted to say before you go too? No, I think you've hit everything. This has actually been a lot of fun. I haven't had a chance to talk about RevFund yet and how the strategy around it evolved because it just launched like last week. So boom. boom. Yeah, you're the first. Good. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Again, my name is Abel Pacheco. We really appreciate you listening. If you got some value from today's show, I know you did. I took a bunch of notes myself. Go to our podcast, subscribe, rate, and leave us a written review. Also go reach out to Vina. Tell her you heard her on this podcast. I would be blessed to hear to to do so. And uh, thank you very much for for joining. We'll see you on our next show. Thank you, Vina. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Five Talents Podcast with your host, myself, Abel Pacheco. Each week, we're going to bring you interviews from industry experts and commercial real estate investors who follow their dreams and achieve massive success. Before you leave, let me ask you a few questions. Did you enjoy this episode? Did you learn something valuable? Was your mind stretched to what's possible and what you can achieve? Do you want other experts just like the one you heard today? If you answered yes to any or all of those questions, then please take a moment to subscribe to the Five Talents Podcast. Give us a five-star rating. And most importantly, leave us a written review. Tell us what you liked. Tell us your favorite guests. Give us any feedback. I'm excited to learn and improve so you can get a more valuable show. So thank you again for subscribing to the Five Talents Podcast.